Life to me is a really great opportunity to find solutions, to be creative, to solve some of these pressing environmental challenges so that we can sustain just these amazing landscapes we have in Europe that we sometimes take for granted. Life is zweifelsohne eine enorme Erfolgsgeschichte und ich möchte wirklich allen von Herzen danken, die dazu beigetragen haben und mit ihrem Einsatz, ihrem persönlichen Einsatz, Life wirklich mit Leben erfüllt haben. With the EU Green Deal, Europe has embarked on a massive project of change. And life is there ahead of us, paving the way for the concrete implementation of the deal. Welcome to Life is 30, a podcast series brought to you by the Life Programme, which for three decades now has led efforts to protect and preserve Europe's natural environment and develop innovative green technologies for a more sustainable future. This fifth episode is called Life in a Warming Climate, and it looks at the support the LIFE programme provides to initiatives of all kinds to help us mitigate and adapt to the effects of climate change. Between 2014 and 2021, LIFE financed 240 projects on climate action with an investment of more than 360 million euro. Our first project in this podcast touches on the effects of increasingly severe weather events and rising sea levels that are a consequence of the warming climate. Let's go to the banks of the River Skeld in Belgium. Life Spark is a project that's part of the Sigma plan, which protects Flanders from flooding by creating a patchwork of small areas next to the river that can flood when there's a tidal storm surge. Vela Campens is the coordinator of LifeSpark. The River Skeld is a tidal river. Uh, we are now here um, in an area that has been depoldered uh, last summer, and we can see the water and the, the mudflats uh, and, the, and the marshes. Depoldered, not a word you often come across, but vitally important for this project. Depoldering, also known as managed realignment, means creating more room for the river to flood during tidal surges. It's done by creating a new dike further inland and then cutting breaches in the old dike, allowing the tides to flow in and out of the new floodplain. This is something that, as Viela explains, is increasingly a matter of necessity in a warming climate. The issue of climate change came more to the top of uh, uh, discussions and the Sigma plan was uh, re-evaluated um, with the topic of climate change. So Sigma plan is also uh, considers uh, sea level rise, so the, the rise of, of the, the tides in the river scale, but also climate change provokes more uh, severe, uh, more, more extreme uh, weather conditions, so also more extreme uh, Storm tides will occur. At the beginning, we also thought of just hiring dikes and, and building a large storm surge barrier. But uh, at the end, it resulted to be too expensive and to be uh, not as effective as, uh, as building all these, uh, this patchwork of uh, flood control areas. Um, also in 2005, when we re-evaluated the Sigma plan, we had also the Bird and Habitat Directive. We had to find more space uh, for tidal nature and one became two. And, and so now the Sigma plan is also really a, a nature restoration project. 
And that's what life does so well, supporting projects like this one that achieve multiple environmental objectives. But life can be harder than it looks, especially when you need to convince local residents that broadening the floodplain is ultimately in their best interests. The mudflats where I met Viela used to be a cornfield. People, they really yeah, they didn't really believe in a project. Uh, they said, yeah, we'll have more mud and children will drown in it and we will have more uh, rats and everything. So, we, yeah, there was really large opposition. Um, local nature organization at first they were really against it but then uh, we talked to them and then slowly they changed their mind uh, and they became one of the first um, promoters of the project yeah we put a lot of effort in in uh, yeah in, in in the social support thanks to viela there from life spark working to mitigate and manage flood risks as she told us, climate change is provoking sea level rises and stronger flood tides. But with all that power, the sea has enormous potential to combat climate change by providing us with limitless green energy through the movement of waves. The EU has set a target of reducing carbon emissions by 55% by 2030, what the Commission calls the Fit for 55 strategy. Studies have indicated that close-to-shore wave energy has the potential to contribute 10% of global electricity demand by 2050. Life Novi Ocean in Sweden is a project at the cutting edge of this hugely promising prospect. And its coordinator, Jan Skjoldhammer, spoke to us about it. Now, the way it works is that first comes the sun up in the morning, the sun creates heat the heat creates the winds and then that wind creates waves but when the wind dissipates then the waves remain for days is the largest battery on earth and is green the project aims to demonstrate the first full-scale novi ocean unit with a rated capacity of 500 kilowatts What's especially amazing about generating clean electricity from wave power is that the technology is really nothing new. It's very simple. It's a large rectangular float first. And it's rectangular because also the waves are mostly rectangular in shape. So we can lift more energy per float out there than you can with the round uh, units. The machinery is actually very simple. We have stolen, I say, the hydropower plant, which you have up in the mountains, and taking it uh, down to sea, upside down. Because normally you have a, a dam up in the mountains, you have a tube going down, perhaps 500 meters. Down there you have a, a turbine generator. It's very simple, but patented in, in 20 countries uh, worldwide. A commercial 500 kilowatt Novi Ocean unit can power around 560 households. The emissions avoided by generating only one megawatt of electricity through Novi Ocean wave energy converters is equivalent to as many as 500 cars. The technology is being tested in western France, next to Nantes. The results from offshore testing match the simulations to the point. So there is no doubt we will give 500 kilowatt in four meter waves. And that's what no one else has proved. No one else is even close. So given we have a low cost, we can get high up output, we do think we have a solution to fix those 40% of the month with no wind and no sun. 
In Europe, western-facing coastlines are the most productive for wave power. Portugal, France, Spain, Ireland. And if it's combined with other renewable energy sources, the sea could provide a more stable source of energy from renewables and replace fossil fuels. If you combine wind power, for instance, with wave power, they are at different times as the wind is down uh, and then the wave still remains. So in our opinion, you have to use wave power and tidal power at large scale to be able to reach the, uh, the goals for 2050. Thanks to Jan Skjoldhammer, innovator and visionary. Now, the European Green Deal is the EU's flagship initiative, an integrated policy across different sectors that works towards the goal of a net zero carbon Europe by the middle of this century. And as a 30-year-old environmental and climate action funding programme of the EU with vast experience of fostering innovation and sharing best practice, the LIFE programme plays a key role in supporting the objectives of the Green Deal. In the current budget cycle up to 2027, 61% of LIFE's budget is dedicated to climate-related action. Here to tell us more is Yvonne Slingenberg, Director of Strategy, Analysis and Planning for Climate Action in the European Commission. We are very busy in DG Climate Action with uh, policy making. Uh, we prepare legislative proposals, strategies, plans, etc. But of course, what really counts is implementation on the ground in the member states, in regions, in, in cities. Uh, and this is what the LIFE program is really all about, putting things into practice and that's how they can make a difference because clearly that is realizing the objectives that we put forward in the policy uh, again on the ground in our transition towards climate neutrality in our reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions in in adapting to climate change impacts etc all these things i think the projects themselves they kind of uh, test new technologies they test new practices and through that, they, they build capacity uh, and, and we learn uh, how these things can be done and how things can be scaled up. So uh, I think life has been doing that for 30 years and we hope that it will continue for a, a lot longer in doing exactly that. The implementation of emissions cutting policy, like the Fit for 55 initiative, isn't always straightforward, especially when it's confronted by major geopolitical challenges like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But this is where life comes in, through its projects, working, analysing, testing all the time, providing the bedrock of evidence to support the EU's long-term climate goals. I know that this year and, and maybe also next year there might be actually an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, which is very difficult for people to kind of square, but then we hope to catch up by, by this increased uh, acceleration of renewable energy use and, uh, and, and energy savings. Now, how does this relate to LIFE? Um, we have this climate action sub-program in LIFE, which has a budget of 1.9 billion euros over seven years. Um, and that is where very concretely we look at, OK, what kind of projects can help? The Fit for 55 package, presented in July 2021, is designed to realise the European climate law objectives and to honour the EU's commitments in the Paris Global Climate Agreement, climate neutrality by 2050 and, as I mentioned earlier, a 55% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, compared with 1990 levels. 
Yvonne explains more. I would say we covered all sectors in one go. We covered uh, transport, uh, so low emission transport modes, new standards for cars and vans to become zero emission uh, vehicles by 2035. It is about preserving and enhancing what we call our natural carbon sinks to in agriculture and land use to really try and store more carbon. So that is a very, very ambitious package we have, but which would sensitize all of us when we use our car, but also how we heat our buildings to really think of how can I go towards cleaner and, and low carbon uh, energy sources and, and, and low carbon um, transport modes. The Conference of the Parties, more commonly known as the COP, is where international agreements, like the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, are made. The next COP is COP27, meeting in Egypt in November 2022, and it's an opportunity for the EU to underline its commitment to global action. We go into every Conference of the Parties by, first of all, uh, having our house in order, leading by example. So we want to show how very, very seriously we are implementing our commitments that we take at the international level. And, and the global goal of adaptation is also something that is enshrined in the Paris Agreement. So here we want to all sign up to enhancing our, our capacity to adapt, to become more resilient, to reduce uh, vulnerability to climate change. And this is something where really uh, the EU needs to be uh, working with developing countries to, to make that happen. Thanks, Yvonne Slingenberg, Director of Strategy, Analysis and Planning for Climate Action in the European Commission. And with that imperative to act in mind, we turn now to the pioneering work of the LIFE programme to make buildings more energy efficient. Today, roughly 75% of the EU building stock is energy inefficient. And when that energy is generated from fossil sources, it means needless carbon emissions that drive climate change. The EU's building stock is responsible for about 40% of the EU's energy use and 36% of emissions, making energy-efficient renovation a key priority for policymakers. The energy performance of buildings directives sets a requirement for EU countries to adopt a long-term renovation strategy. In its 2020 Renovation Wave initiative, the EU set a target of renovating 2% of buildings per year. Let's meet now a project based in northern Italy, Life Hero Tile, which is keeping a roof on the energy consumption of buildings, quite literally, a roof that breathes and reduces the energy needed to cool buildings as our climate warms. We have managed to create a tile that is waterproof, with an increase in airflow of more than 300%, so three times more than the classic Portuguese tile widespread all over the world. We have managed both to guarantee waterproofing to the roof and allow for greater breathability. Mario Cunial is from the Hero Tile project. The project tested a new design of the two most common roof tiles in the world to achieve a greater replicability worldwide. We worked on the design of the tiles. We assessed the theoretical performance and then measured the real performance in the field. First on the test roofs, then on real roofs in social housing developments, one in Reggio Emilia in Italy and one in Zaragoza in Spain. In a comparison between the real properties, one not ventilated and one with our new solution, 
we saw a 50% reduction in energy used for cooling throughout the warmer season between May and October. HeroTile collected 320 million separate items of data on the performance of the tiles on different types of buildings and roofs. HeroTile's follow-up project called, what else, Life Superhero, now aims to calculate the effects on mitigation in built-up areas prone to the urban heat island effect. Life Superhero has been selected by the Innovation Radar platform of the European Commission as one of the best EU-funded projects on the market with innovation potential. This time, we are also going to measure the heat island effect. Therefore, we're looking not only at the performance of the buildings as we did with the Hero Tile project, but we're now taking into account the performance of the roof tiles to mitigate the heat island effect. We're going to propose a European regulatory standard. We want to establish good practices with smart cities. There's a community of smart cities that are working to this end, both in Italy and abroad. Thanks to Mario Cunial from Life Hero Tile. Now, Life Superhero. There's a lot that big companies and institutions can do to combat climate change. But as Mario was suggesting, we can all take steps at home to make a difference. Let's stay in Italy, because here's a project that celebrates the best of the country's wonderful food, but with a climate-responsible twist, given that food production is responsible for around a third of greenhouse gas emissions. To be able to remain within global warming of 2 degrees Celsius at most, so to stay within the limits already established in the Paris Agreement, we should consume food that accounts for no band 2.3 kilograms of CO2 per person per day. That's Riccardo Valentini, coordinator of the Suitable Life Project and a member of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Suitable life demonstrates the potential of reducing CO2 emissions and water use related to food consumption through the adoption of a more healthy and sustainable diet. The project proposed new canteen menus to university students and workers at the Barilla Foundation and Ducati Motors in Italy. These menus included recipes based on vegetables, fruit and lesser-known cereals, and reducing the amount of red meat, which has a notably higher carbon footprint. One kilo of beef steak has an impact of 25.8 kilos of carbon dioxide, while a kilo of vegetables produces just 300 grams. We have reduced food greenhouse gas emissions by 30% in the Ducati Motors canteen. We also managed to make people happy because they discovered a new way of approaching food, a new recipe sprang up. This is very important because sometimes people think that sustainable eating is a sacrifice, like having an hospital diet, the saddest one you can imagine, but it's not like that. Thanks to the chefs who worked with us, we created a database of sustainable recipes and there are now more than, than 300. They are very appetizing recipes, beautiful to look at, beautiful to eat, tasty, and all of which are fundamentally created around the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and water consumption. 
The research team has developed a system to calculate how much carbon a recipe accounts for and how much water is consumed or saved in its production. As often happens with these projects, they take on a life of their own. Those recipes are available on the project website. Five projects have developed elsewhere, replicating suitable life's ideas. Information kits are now available for other catering outlets to use, and a life project on climate chefs, reinforcing a culture of sustainability in the kitchen, is ongoing. My message is that we often think of these issues that affect the future of the planet as very distant from us. There is almost the feeling that we can't do anything because everything is decided perhaps from above and so on. I don't believe this. Instead, citizens can change a lot because we are consumers. We make choices every day of our lives and the choices we make play an important role in governing the economic systems of the planet as well. To believe in this and to continue to work with normal citizens, I think that should be our priority right now. Thanks, Riccardo Valentini, working to develop solutions in the food sector, where low-carbon transformation will be critical to meeting Europe's climate goals. But as the comprehensive focus of the Green Deal demonstrates, Europe's businesses, societies and citizens need to make changes in so many other ways to contribute to our common climate objectives. Life Care for Climate is an integrated project that, through awareness raising, education and training of key stakeholders, encourages the implementation of measures to help Slovenia meet its greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. The activities include actions to fight food waste, to increase the energy efficiency of buildings, to improve grassland and forestry for carbon sequestration, and to boost the uptake of public transport. Pia Primech is from the Sustainable Mobility and Transport Policy Division in the Slovenian Ministry of Infrastructure. Yeah, now it's just ongoing campaign on really on these renewable resources in transport. So our campaign is talking about how to decrease your costs in a way to drive slowly um, using uh, air conditioning the car more wisely. Thinking about active mobility, how can it save you? Also in, in this uh, energy crisis that it's coming, we are trying to promote like uh, carpooling, active mobility, walk under two kilometers, uh, use your bicycle uh, under 10 kilometers. We are also talking about how good it is to use public transport, of course. The project demonstrates just how important it is to work with all levels of governance to maximise impact. Around half of Slovenia's 200 municipalities are now taking part. We have exceeded the results that we wanted to achieve, like for 200 or 300 percent. We didn't know that the interest will be so high. And we are really glad that municipalities and also people reacted in a way that rea they reacted on our activities. And I think we, we are now just in the phase that we can see that, that our activities and our work bring some fruit, bring some results. And therefore, we have new ideas and new ideas all the time. 
And as so often with life projects, communication, outreach and open engagement with citizens can make all the difference in achieving positive outcomes. I think the biggest lesson learned is that we have to firstly communicate in the right manner, not only on a national level, not only with institutes or other ministries or NGOs, but also we have to communicate with, in the right manner with municipalities and then also with locals. We talk with shop owners, we talk with schoolers, we talk with their parents. And what we can see is that 80% of schoolers wants to go to school by walking or cycling. And only 5% of them are coming walking or cycling to school. It's horrible. So we really have to do something in this manner. Pia Primech there, thanks to her. Our final project for this podcast goes back to nature to look at a major source of carbon emissions and to consider how restoration can make an enormous difference. Peatlands have been part of the landscape in Europe for millions of years and they're great at storing carbon until humans start to interfere with them. Leticia Jurema from the Life Peat Restore Project picks up the story. Usually peatlands, they, they become degraded because they are drained. Peatlands, they have to be under uh, waterlogged conditions constantly, or at least most of the time, most of the year. Um, so we need, basically, we need to raise the water levels to, to near the surface. That's the ideal. And to do that, we just need to undo what was done with the drainage system. So sometimes, because when, when the peatlands are drained and the water is drained, there's more tree species that grows. So sometimes restoration does mean we need to remove that those trees that were that grew but did not belong there. And yet we're often told that we need more trees in the world and that more trees make for a stronger impact against climate change. That can be a challenge for the public because um, trees, they are always associated with something positive, something, you know, nature, this is good. So why are you removing trees? And that can be difficult. It can really be a challenge to communicate that in this case, in this specific case, it's actually not good for the, for the ecosystem that we're talking about. The carbon impact of draining peatlands can be sudden and dramatic, as Leticia explains. When you start to drain that, all of that, like, carbon that is accumulated in this kind of partially decomposed plants from thousands of years is just released into the atmosphere. And that's why it's like a carbon bomb, you know, when it interacts with oxygen in the atmosphere, it becomes carbon dioxide. And this is what I found personally, you know, fascinated about peatlands when I started with it. It's that it can be one of our greatest allies in our fight against climate change. You know, when they are healthy, they help just store all of that carbon in. But when they're drained, when they're degraded, they become one of our worst enemies. Life Peat Restore has worked in Germany, Poland and the three Baltic states. And it's one of several peatland-focused life projects that, over the years, have been advocating for restoration measures as part of our collective efforts in Europe to protect and restore habitats and reduce carbon emissions. 
peatlands only cover 3% of terrestrial surface, you know, and of those 3%, there is 10% that is degraded. So that means 0,3% of the land surface area. That 0,3% is responsible for approximately 7 to 8% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. That's how powerful a source they can be when they are degraded. But restore those 0,3% and you already have a massive positive impact on reducing carbon emissions. So that's why governments are finally realizing, oh my God, we, we have to focus on peatlands. Thanks, Leticia. And that's a great way to end, with a demonstration of how life can shape and even lead policymaking and action that improves life for all of us in Europe. We hope you've enjoyed this latest in our Life is 30 series of podcasts looking at life in a warming climate and discovering the multitude of projects so diverse in character but so similar in objectives. Our next episode of Life is 30 will be looking at the link between life and entrepreneurial activity, showing how business can be a force for positive environmental action. We look forward to you joining us for that one too. In the meantime, share this episode with your friends and colleagues and remind them, life, it's what you make it. Dear listeners, thanks for tuning in to Life is 30, the podcast series celebrating 30 years of the LIFE programme, the EU's funding instrument for the environment and climate action. Life is 30 is brought to you by SENEA, the European Climate Infrastructure and Environment Executive Agency. Research and production by Margarita Sforza and Claire Taylor. Our thanks to all the members of the LIFE community. Thank you.